Spring in Toronto, 170 years ago. The banks of Lake Ontario are crowded with the first of what will be tens of thousands of Irish immigrants escaping the deadly famine in their home country. They spill out of crowded steamships, sick, hungry, tired from the months-long journey, desperate for a home. In this moment of crisis, the predominantly Protestant Toronto opened its arms to people from a different culture with a different faith. It was a defining moment. Through the years, Toronto has seen many newcomers from all over the world, each person adding to the complex fabric of the city. Whole neighborhoods grew up amid a cacophony of languages, of music, and activity. The welcome ad has not always been rolled out. Then, as now, the diversity of the city has caused tensions. People have been failed, persecuted, or pushed away. But ultimately, we see ourselves as a multicultural city, and we're proud of it. We can at least imagine a future when we are that city. But it's helpful to remember, we have been that city. We did it before, and we can do it again. This is Spacing Radio. From the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, millions of migratory birds are dying in Toronto each year and it's something we can all work to prevent. We find out how. And we speak to a criminology professor about a damning review of the city's sanctuary city policy. But first, the book The Ward is a history of Toronto's first immigrant neighbourhood. It preserves the stories of a place that shaped this city, but has been since swept away and replaced by new developments, including Nathan Phillips Square. These stories are compelling, and the neighborhood they describe was rich in culture, a true mosaic in the heart of a quickly growing city. Toronto-based musician David Bookbinder was inspired by the book and brought his own skill and background in cross-cultural music and storytelling to develop the ward into a new musical. Stand by. Okay. First, David, if you could uh, tell us a bit about uh, your, your career in music. So I've been involved in music for many, many years, my whole life. And um, uh, uh, at the core of what I do, I'm a trumpet player, composer, producer. But my interest in things, my curiosity has led me all kinds of directions. So I've been a founding artistic director of several festivals and organizations, and I've created large-scale multidisciplinary shows uh, and everything, but everything somehow seems to kind of be connected in some way to cross-cultural creation. There's a lot of jazz in there, but a lot of world music as well. And I'm really interested in the places where cultural and musical and social ecosystems intersect. I really like that that zone where um, people and cultures are bumping up against each other. Right. And uh, you, you have this new project that is based uh, off the book The Ward, which our uh, spacing senior editor John Lawrence uh, sort of curated and edited. What about that that material sort of spoke to you as as a piece of music and a piece of performance? Uh, a couple things. I mean, I knew about The Ward probably, which before the release of that book, very few people in Toronto knew about it because it doesn't exist anymore. That's in a way a problem. I like to say. It's uh, Toronto's Lower East Side, 
But the big difference is you can visit the Lower East Side and see the tenements and experience, you know, some echo of what the life was like. But instead of the ward, we have City Hall and we have uh, a bunch of not very nice 80s buildings kind of around Dundas and Bay. Uh, so it's kind of hard to stand in the middle of it and live it and experience it. And, you know, pre this book, so pre a couple of years ago, very few people knew. I happened to know about it because of some research I'd done in regards to a festival I created. And um, so when Michael McClelland, who's one of the other, excuse me, editors of the book, um, handed the book to me in a totally different context, just as a gift, you know, here, take this book that just came out that I'm involved in. And I looked at it and I said, hey, Michael, <clears throat> I know all about the word. This is amazing. This would make a great opera. And he was like, what? That sounds, you know, because Michael is an enthusiastic person. Uh, instead of just going, okay, whatever, he said, oh, let's talk about that. We really need to talk about that. So we did, and I kind of had read the book by then and really saw that uh, that it was an amazing window into a forgotten part of Toronto's history, which to me is interesting not only as history, because to me history is something that is alive, right, that all times exist you know simultaneously and that it's an act of imagination to tap into that uh which is cool but again to me only interesting insofar as can you know however much it can tell us about where we are and where we're headed right so to me if you look back at the word and go hmm toronto's first cross-cultural neighborhood in a place that was fairly monocultural meaning First Nations people, but they were shunted to the side and, uh, you know, um, people from the British Isles, more or less. So in that con into that context comes this cross-cultural picture, and that is like a seed of what Toronto has become and maybe a seed of, you know, the best of where we're going. So uh, to me, it becomes a fascinating thing that where you can resonate the past with the present and use those two places those two nodes if you will to imagine the future um you know never mind that the cultures that made up the war have great music as part of them and so you know that'll make a good show in any case but certainly uh seemed very interesting thing to me to do to explore what the ward really sounded like what would it be you know if you were standing at elizabeth and dundas in 1910 or 1920 what would you have heard um, what was coming out of the windows of the gin joints or the uh, speakeasies or the restaurants or the social clubs or the dance halls or the synagogues or the churches, you know, like what, what, were the, what was the musical life of that place like? So we began to explore it and that uh, led to the show. Right, and so the former St. John's Ward uh, was a landing place for all different types of uh, immigrants. Uh, it seems like, uh, yeah, it really seems to sort of represent what your your musical passions, what, what you've been chasing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, like I said before about cross-cultural stuff. So, you know, I've been uh, almost in spite of myself since my original focus, I just want to play jazz. But, and I do, um, but I was pulled, be, this being Toronto in the 80s and 90s and aughts, uh, there's so many musical cultures that you can now participate in and learn from and, you know, be enriched by. So I got that opportunity um, and also, explore, you know, sort of went after it on my own uh, following my musical passion. So I've been involved in uh, Jewish music. I've been involved in Arabic music. I've been involved in uh, Roma or Gypsy music. I've been involved in Afro-Cuban. 
um, and its offshoots. Uh, I've been a film composer. I've, you know, there, uh, you know, and I've written for large scale jazz ensemble and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and this place where cultures connect that I keep talking about uh, is a really fascinating thing, not just because it relates to Toronto's past, but to me, it really is the keystone of the future of this place is, you know, answering the question in practice, how do we create something new out of everything that has been brought here, right? How do we reimagine it and form it together into some new creation uh, that is really Toronto specific? So I think going back to the ward and beginning to, you know, experiencing this kind of first contact between different cultures who had landed in this what was to them a really alien place, um, and that intersection with what was already here uh, begins to get at what we're looking for in the show. Uh, I would say, so now the show that we're presenting um, this round uh, is really step one. And step one is the imagination or reimagination of the ward circa 1910 or 1890 or 1925 or you know in that period when all this was going on but it's a first step because where it will hopefully lead after um and this will be the second time we've performed this version of the show but what it will hopefully lead to is when we bring the present into it which is okay so i'm rooted in jewish culture and i'm helping to represent and uh sort of perform uh the what the Jewish content of the ward musically would have been, and Andrew Craig, a great piano player, also a composer, uh, is representing the African Canadian community, and Michael Acapinti representing the Italian Canadian uh, experience through music. But we're all contemporary musical artists who are not locked into the past. We're all creating new work out of this influence in our own sort of separate from the ward. And so the real interesting question is, what will we create now? You know, where did, that's the next step. So you're not going to hear that in this show when we perform on uh, April 26th, but, uh, but it, this show is the question, right? It, it asks the question, well, where does it go? You know, all this stuff. But the thing that we discovered in doing it the first time is the culture and the history and the music and the images that we've gotten from the editors of the book, because we use some, uh, some uh, projection as well, and the stories that we tell, because we are not just playing the music, there's some talking about the whole context in a theatrical way, uh, is incredibly rich. And people found it very um, compelling and engaging, and it's like it opens a door or a window on something that's right there, but none of us normally see. And this project also seems to answer a question that uh, we wrestle with a lot in Toronto and, and probably other cities in Canada is how to how do we preserve our stories and even celebrate them going forward? Right. And I think that is it. You know, I really feel like um, it would be great if once and for all we could drop any hint of a Toronto or a Canadian inferiority complex. I don't think we really even have it. It's sort of like a a habit whereas you know for me this project a lot is about saying not only should we but we have every capacity and reason to create our own mythology 
Like this is our mythology. This is a mythology of like, you know, uh, beautiful women and, you know, young dashing men who are hard scrabble streets and who are fighting their way to create something new and who've come in some cases from incredible trauma um, and are making their way in this new world, which is not that hospitable, but is way less dangerous than where they came from. And, you know, who are not, it's not some fantasy of, oh, look, everybody's getting along and eating each other's food. But at the very least, they're uh, all bumping up against each other. And, you know, in spite of themselves taking on the coloring of the other people around them and, you know, literally and figuratively and in dress and in uh, food and in sounds, right? And all this stuff, that to me is a huge... That happened elsewhere in this, you know, quote, unquote, new world that happened in New York. But we had a very particular experience of it here in Toronto um, in this context, in this place. And for me, there's something that's really, again, in an imaginative way, in a energetic way, in a spiritual way, it's really important to connect to the energy of the place. I've spent a lot of time since I got involved in this project, when I have a minute, just biking around or walking around the former ward to try and absorb the echoes of what's there. And I think that kind of approach to telling our stories and saying uh, that I can connect into all of this um, very powerful, these lives that were lived here, they didn't disappear. They're still here somehow in the, you know, in the challenges and the triumphs and the uh, creativity of these people, we can draw on them and we can be strengthened by it and we can tell our own story. They might even recognize the story that we'll tell about them or about their lives. I don't think that matters because, you know, we're not pretending to be historians. So I do think that the imaginative enterprise of, of creating our own myths, myths and saying you know, here's the story we're telling is what we're supposed to do. And you can see a live staging of The Ward at Lula Lounge April 26th, and tickets are available at the Spacing Store and online at Eventbrite. Now, each spring, tens of millions of migratory birds return to Toronto, and each year about a million die from collisions with windows. Michael Mazur, executive director of the Fatal Light Awareness Program, or FLAP, and the city's Kelly Snow, tell us what we can do to prevent these deaths and what the city's doing to encourage bird-friendly development. All right, so uh, this time of the year, uh, in the spring, uh, we, we have a problem that the city's trying to address with uh, migratory birds. Uh, can... Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what's at stake, what, what's happening? Sure. There's well over uh, 450 species of birds that migrate through the Ontario region every spring and every fall. And among these species, uh, there's, uh, there's this phenomenon that occurs too, in fact. There's birds that clite with the brightly lit structures of structures like we see here in Toronto. Uh, they also, during the day, they clite with all the glazing, all the, the windows uh, that reflect the surrounding environment. So these two issues... Uh, combined have uh, resulted in one of the leading causes of bird death across Canada. And in fact, it's uh, the second leading cause of bird death, uh, second only to cats. So we're dealing with a very serious issue, and the City of Toronto is working very hard, uh, along with Flap Canada, to, to address the issue. Okay, and where are these birds coming from, primarily? 
Right. So they, they winter in uh, central South American regions uh, and, uh, as you can imagine, migrate a significant distance up to as far north as uh, uh, the Hudson Bay region and so forth. And this is right across the entire country, actually. Um, they breed and feed during the summer months, and then the whole cycle continues. They go back to their wintering grounds uh, in the tropics again. And so what are some things that uh, city, uh, citizens or business owners can do to sort of prevent these bird deaths? There's a number of things. Uh, when you divide the issues into the two categories of night and, and day, the nighttime issue has got to be one of the easiest issues to resolve. A flick of the switch and the problem disappears. And we've had some, some uh, significant uh, steps taken by building operators to address the issue. You turn off lights, you not only save birds, you're saving energy, reducing climate change, you name it. It's one of those win-win situations no matter how you look at it. During the day is a little more tricky because it involves uh, affecting to a degree the aesthetics of the building. Um, by placing bird deterrent markers on them and uh, making sure that the proximity of greenery and so forth uh, isn't isn't going to uh, attract too many birds toward that building. So um, various bird deterrent markers are available today that weren't available some six, seven years ago that are creating this whole opportunity for a new look to architecture. And uh, the City of Toronto's uh, Green Standard is offering some uh, challenges to that matter, and uh, some beautiful architecture appearing on the Toronto landscape now. So when you're talking about these markers, uh, I'm picturing uh, there, there are decals on, let's say, Old Mill Station, uh, the sort of glass rock there. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Well, that the, uh, the decals that you're talking about are sort of, they were one of the first uh, bird deterrent markers that appeared on the landscape. And sadly, for a deterrent of that nature to work properly, you have to cover the majority of that glass surface with an array of those markers and aesthetically it's unappealing. So a lot of research has gone, uh, has taken place that has developed some very aesthetically pleasing markers that meet the criteria of density, uh, spacing of markers and contrast of markers that uh, stand out to the bird's eye without it uh, being too obtrusive to the human eye. And uh, at the same time, there's some beautiful uh, markers coming up on the windows that are We've always said this, treat your window like a canvas. There's numerous things that you can do to actually enhance the beauty of your building uh, while at the same time address the issue. And for how long has the city been trying to uh, address this um, uh, in terms of just getting people aware of the problem and, uh, and you know, letting them know that there, there are things that they can be doing? The city released the bird-friendly development guidelines in 2007, and those were voluntary at the time. In 2010, we came out with the uh, required Toronto Green Standard, version 1, and the bird-friendly development guidelines were incorporated into the Toronto Green Standard at that time. And we revised them in 2014 uh, and uh, tightened up the requirements a bit, made them a little uh, easier to achieve, actually, for architects and planners and so on. And we are in the process of going through uh, ver uh, developing version three of the Toronto Green Standard. And uh, that will, uh, again, um, maybe tighten up or uh, increase the, the uh, requirements a little as we learn more and more. We uh, also, in 2016, we, re we released uh, best practices for bird-friendly glass, which uh, adds to the original... Um, uh, information that was found in the in the twenty in the 07 document, and in a couple of weeks we will be releasing best practices for effective lighting, which is a, a which is a more comprehensive issue than just 
the bird uh, aspect. Uh, it incorporates uh, several uh, rationale as to why we need to reduce light pollution, including its effect on the urban ecology that is found here. So those are the main things that the city's been doing. So we've been involved uh, in working on this uh, for about 12 years now. It was brought to our attention in 20, in, two, in 05, sorry, uh, FLAP. Um, was able to uh, work with a couple of councillors who had a motion passed. And so that then was given to planning because we're the uh, primary division, the division that primarily works with, with uh, the building applications. And so that's how it ended up on, on, on my desk, actually. Um, so we've been working on this uh, for about, uh, well, 12 years now yeah. with FLAP. And what are some challenges that you're finding in trying to address this? Is it an awareness thing or, or has it been largely successful? Um, awareness is certainly something that we've had as a challenge for this. Um, informing ourselves was the first step. It took us about a year to really get a handle on what was involved. We had to meet with everyone, all the different actors that are uh, in, engaged in this issue in some in some respect. Um, in terms of awareness, I think that um, some people are are aware, were aware at the beginning, but through uh, a public awareness campaign, education, we had a campaign on the subways for for a while, like like posters, asking people to turn their lights off during migration season and so on. And I think over the last twelve years, this issue has become more much more mainstream than it was in 05 in 05 it was when when we when it was first uh, given to us to 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 address my impression was that for the most part it appeared to people that this was a bunch of environmental you know fanatics running around with nets in the mornings picking up dead birds and so we had to inform ourselves as to how the city cuz we feel strongly that this is and we've uh, revised our uh, official plan recently to give us the clear mandate to address uh, the needs of migratory birds and so we are we've been directed in a, uh, by council to do this and we believe this is a very important um, thing to do but you're right awareness is something that we have had to uh, build and um, it's been done actually now we're at the point where uh, architects are uh, Development corporations, the big ones, are just doing this automatically. It's not even a question. And so uh, we're continuing to, to see, as we learn, uh, we're continuing to increase our standards and, uh, and, and inform ourselves and, and, and help other cities, actually. We've been helping other, working with other cities to, to do um, the same thing. So it's, it's, an, it's been an interesting process, uh, the, the journey from a fringe, almost like strange issue to something that's really quite mainstream. And just to put a fine point on the scale of the problem, uh, I think the the city press release that I read said that uh, there could be millions of birds a year that that die because of um, because of a lack of these sort of mediations. Uh, one of the more common uh, statistics to kind of give people a scale is it's between one to ten birds will collide with each structure that has glass um, in any given environment. Now, on a one-off, you know, one that one to ten birds doesn't seem much at, a, at one building. But when you multiply that with every building in your city, and if I'm Kelly, if I'm not mistaken, nine hundred forty thousand registered structures, I think for yeah. 
It's probably closer. Yeah, it's that's that was the, the figure. I think it's probably close to a million now. But yeah. So yeah, you do the math. One one to ten birds, you know, per with a, a million structures, you're dealing with a significant problem. And I think Michael would probably point this out as well, but it's not just these huge facades that are glass. It's any glass, any window poses a threat. So single detached homes, um, small garages, sheds, anything with a window that reflects habitat, that can pose a threat to birds. Um, We work in terms of planning. We work with the tools that we have available through the Planning Act and so on. And we are able to do this through site plan control. Any development application that uh, goes through the site plan control process, we can require them to meet the, tr- uh, the, the tier one of the Toronto Green Standard. And so that's the regulatory tool that we use in order to um, address the issue. Some structures are not required to go through site plan, such as single detached homes, small garages and so on and so we don't have the means to um, regulate that through the planning development application process which comes back to the point of raising awareness so if so we are raising awareness of this issue and uh, helping to cultivate a sense of stewardship in people and so on and we are hoping that individual residents, like people who build homes near ravines or anywhere, really, um, are uh, going to understand that this is something that they should probably try to address through treating their windows or, you know, in, in some way making their homes more bird-friendly. So, yeah. And so if I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm outside my house and uh, I see an injured bird, I come across an injured bird, uh, what can I do? What, what sort of city resources are there? The first thing that you need to do is, is if the bird is alive, you need to contain that bird. Uh, most people see that bird lying there traumatized. They'll give it a chance to regain its composure and fly away. But one of the greatest challenges uh, a fallen bird has, a traumatized bird has, is uh, avoiding being scavenged. Uh, you can have crows, gulls, chipmunks, squirrels, cats. The, the, it's endless, the list of potential predators out there that will take that injured bird away. So bring the bird inside, contain it in a, a paper bag, Put it somewhere for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, if that bird's hopping around in that bag, uh, give that bird a second chance by releasing it back into the wild. But just don't release it back into your backyard where you found that bird because more often than not, that bird's just going to turn around and fly right back into the same window it hit. You need to go to a nice wood lot to park somewhere and release it in that area in the hopes that it doesn't collide with the window again. And there is a rehabilitation center that people can make use of if they do have a, an injured bird? Yes. Uh, of the birds that we pick up, uh, sadly, 60% of these birds end up dying, but the remaining 40%, uh, many of them need some form of rehabilitation. Uh, in fact, uh, 10% of that 40% of birds end up uh, being shipped to the Toronto Wildlife Centre. They're a wildlife rehabilitation facility in the northern region of, of the Toronto area. And uh, they have a very high success rate. In fact, uh, 90% of the birds we send there end up being rehabilitated and released back into the world. So locally, this is a a good resource uh, for any homeowner, if they find an injured bird, uh, to feel free to take it to that location. Um, And then uh, the dead birds, uh, we, uh, our our volunteers, all the birds that we uh, encounter that are dead or end up dying, we contain them. And we donate them to the Royal Ontario Museum. So all these birds go to uh, a very important research in bird conservation. In fact, we uh, 
Uh, on, on April 21st, we'll be holding our annual bird layout at the ROM, showing the array of birds that our volunteers picked up the year before as an educational campaign. And then after that, all those birds will be donated not only to the ROM, but to other museums across the world. They use them for research, uh, for all kinds of uh, projects across the country. So the good news on the sad side of the story is even you know, no bird goes to waste. They go to good research purposes. All over North America, municipalities are declaring themselves sanctuary cities in the hopes of protecting vulnerable immigrants without citizenship. It's a powerful statement, but researchers have found that Toronto is saying one thing and doing another. We asked Ryerson professor Dr. Graham Hudson, one of the authors of a 2016 study, No Access to Yo, how Toronto fares as an aspiring sanctuary city. So in 2013, Toronto became the first Canadian city to be uh, a, a sanctuary city, as it's called. What constitutes a, a sanctuary city specifically? Uh, it's a term of art, and it can vary depending on the city. Uh, in general, though, sanctuary cities are those cities that promise uh, to provide municipal and police services to every resident, regardless of immigration status. Uh, as part of that promise, they, they claim one of two things, or sometimes both. One is to not ask about immigration status if it's irrelevant to the provision of a service. So it's almost a a don't ask policy. And then the other side of that is a a don't tell. So that if for some reason uh, a city official inadvertently discovers uh, immigration status, they promise not to forward that information to federal authorities. So it's just basically the idea is to provide a city where non-status migrants feel safe and and they feel free to access services that they're legally and um, more entitled to. And what kind of things do we see uh, for non-status citizens when, when these uh, sort of don't ask, don't tell policies aren't in place? Uh, well, it's a, a wide range of human rights issues. I think the first thing to think about is the mental health uh, that goes with living underground, uh, living in a state of perpetual uncertainty, the fear, the distrust, the anxiety, depression. Uh, A good number of non-status migrants are persons who um, have well-founded fear of persecution or even worse, uh, torture if they were uh, removed. So they are sometimes coming from parts of the country and from a past uh, where they um, have developed already uh, some mental health issues. Uh, Related to that are, are physical health issues, either that are directly caused by days, weeks, months, years of living in that condition. Other times, the the physical health issues are issues that they've come to Canada with by virtue, perhaps, of lack of adequate health care in the countries of origin, uh, perhaps lack of adequate nourishment, uh, environmental uh, issues. Uh, In addition to to these kind of physical and mental uh, issues, which are almost entirely uniform over a set period of time, uh, you see sorts of um, human rights issues that uh, affect particular subsections of the community, Uh, women and children in particular. Uh, face uh, wide, uh, wide-ranging um, uh, exploitive uh, and um, sexual assault um, experiences. Uh, so in the domestic home, if you're a domestic caregiver, for example, you're very vulnerable to the whims of an 
employer and you can't really call a police officer safely in order to report a crime. Uh, children uh, who are subject to domestic violence have no one to turn to. Uh, oftentimes men, on the other hand, uh, work in construction industries and they do work that uh, is physically very demanding and unsafe. Uh, and while they, in some instances, may be unionized, uh, they can't access labor rights and their employers uh, oftentimes, or at least are, are free, uh, to hold uh, the threat of deportation over their heads to uh, dissuade them from, from basically standing up for their rights. Uh, and so all of these, these issues kind of uh, cluster together and can be very serious for a good number. And so uh, Toronto's version of the Sanctuary City has been ongoing for a couple of years now, and, and uh, you and your colleagues at Ryerson have uh, s- sort of prepared a study that came out last November, uh, which sort of adjudicates the success rate. Has it been doing the things that it set out to do, uh, and uh, can it build upon that, or, or where is it failing? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, no, it, it, it's not successful. I think part of the, the question that, that needs to be asked as a follow-up to, to your question is what, what measures of success should we use and is it fair to use for the city? Uh, when you look at Sanctuary City, the bare minimum is that the city should be providing access to municipal services. Uh, you, you also want to see Sanctuary City be a little bit more progressive and maybe use the the political clout of the city to uh, to kind of uh, change the way the provincial and the federal governments operate. Uh, and in both of those respects, the city has been faltering, to be, to be honest. In the first respect, uh, there have been a number of reports which predate ours, uh, which showed uh, that specific service areas were, were not effectively being pr- provided. Policing, I think, was the big one that was um, uh, reported on by No One Is Illegal. Um, what we found is the, and what the purpose of the report was uh, about, was to look into the very particulars as to why is this happening? Uh, why is it that Sanctuary City is not being implemented and, and how can we make it better? And, and so we interviewed a good number of city staff. It's one thing to talk to the mayor and you know all the politicians who make a decision and then move on to the next issue. It's the city staff who are the ones who are responsible for providing the services and they're the ones responsible for implementing the policy to be begin with. And so in talking to them, what we found was that the uh, city council, the politicians, basically made this grand declaration and then provided virtually zero funding for the implementation of this policy. So there's been next to no training of a a city of 60,000. Only 131 city staff have received any training uh, with regards to uh, the perspectives and the experiences of non-status migrants how to interact with them, uh, and what uh, the Sanctuary City policy is all about. There's been no funding for um, freestanding positions. Uh, so where, where an individual, let's say in Toronto Public Health or in shelters, uh, there's no position in e- any of these divisions where somebody has as their entire job making sure that the people around them understand how their specific service area can adapt to the needs of non-status migrants. Basically, there's one, maybe two people in the entire city whose entire job is to look at an access to you. So there needs to be more of that. Um, and other issues that we found is uh, Toronto police uh, have uh, basically gone off in their own direction. Uh, they have decided that their priority is to assist the federal government in uh, catching non-status migrants under the pretense that non-status migrants are somehow uh, criminal or security risks. 
and as a result of that have have not complied with sanctuary city policy and this has a massive uh, kind of psychological impact uh, to the non-status migrant who looks at the entire government as one entity if you can't trust the police what reason do you have to trust the person who works in the library or the person who works in Toronto Public Health uh, so the police being um, very, very, uh, let's just say flagrantly non-compliant with sanctuary city policy has made it an already difficult job that much more difficult. And so in terms of the police, uh, you know, what what kind of steps could the city take to, to get them in line? Does it come from a more heavy-handed direction from the mayor himself or, uh, you know, a more unified council voice uh, about it? Uh, what, what are some steps that we could take to, to improve the policing uh, relations with the non-status? Yeah, that, that would help. Uh, you know, we, we've seen some back and forth between city council and Toronto Police Services over the past year and a half, ever since No One is Illegal's report was released in November of 2015. Uh, and so city council has called the chief of police, first Bill Blair and, and now uh, Mark Saunders, to, to go count and answer to why they've uh, not complied with access to but also why they've not complied with their own internal policy which toronto police officially the la- the, the most formal iteration of which was promulgated in 2008 why toronto police are not complying with, with their own don't ask policy and the answers that the toronto police have given have been either um inaccurate or you know to be quite honest um deliberately misleading their perspective is that uh, they are legally, quote-unquote, compelled to forward information to the federal government if they discover someone's status because they claim uh, they are legislatively bound to assist in the execution of a federal arrest warrant. The problem with that reasoning, as has been pointed out a number of times, is that the vast majority of non-status migrants in Canada do not have an outstanding federal arrest warrant in their name. The point of fact, the federal government has no idea how many non-status migrants there are in the country. None, right? They, they have some individuals' names on file, specifically failed asylum seekers, fa- failed refugee claimants who have not left the country, but people who have arrived legally, let's say temporary foreign workers or international students or somebody who's come here in any other capacity legally and has not left, the government has no idea they're here. So how could there be an arrest warrant? Those individuals are as entitled as any other type of non-status migrant to access police services. And so why the Toronto police are actively trying to send the names of these non-status migrants to the government so that the government can then find who they are and where they live is is hard to explain it's it's inexplicable with respect to legislation there's no uh there's no need for them to be doing that the problem that that activists and advocates face and the city council is that toronto police are unaccountable to city council you know, for good reasons, police and politicians are separate. You don't want to have politicians to, you know, capable of directing police to, to do this and do that, right? The police should be independent. Uh, but what we have here is uh, an example of how that can be uh, dangerous. And so the one governmental authority that has the capacity to intervene is the province. We saw this in Toronto uh, not too long ago with carting, uh, where the police were racially profiling and carting individuals, and the uh, government of Ontario amended uh, Police Service Act regulations to expressly say 
you can't do that. Although it should be pointed out, courts have been saying that for, for decades. Uh, legislation was amended to say that. And I think it's time for the province uh, to amend the legislation with respect to this issue and to take a stand on the question of non-status migrants. And so that kind of goes back to the earlier point. The city of Toronto, if it can't control the police, at the very least what it could do is take that issue up to the provincial government and have a dialogue with them about policing. And as far as we have found in our report, there is no communication between the city of Toronto and the province of Ontario with respect to non-status migrants, with the one exception of human smuggling and trafficking, uh, which is not at all uh, relevant to uh, to the human rights issues we're, we're talking about in, in, in very uh, common cases. And to expand that conversation about the city's role in, in talking to the other levels of government, um, we are in a political climate right now, um, maybe all over the world, but uh, uh, in, in the States, certainly with under Donald Trump, and uh, we, we see it now in the uh, conservative leadership race, uh, that there are some wildly anti-immigrant sentiments um, and, um, you know, sort of what they call dog whistle politics. And uh, does the city have a role in, in that, in kind of weighing in on, on that level of discourse on, in other levels of government? I, I do think so. Um, you know, that's a question that one, I guess, kind of sees uh, after the wave of sanctuary city uh, declarations uh, the past month or so with Montreal and London and uh, going forward. Uh, you know, is it just symbolic? And maybe there is a symbolic component, but what's wrong with symbolism? I think symbolism is actually potent. It's important for the city to make a statement uh, about national and international issues uh, as a way of uh, kind of contributing to and reinforcing uh, a sense of belonging within the city. If you're living in a city and your your mayor or, or somebody in the in the, in the city uh, makes a statement like that, it's not it's not going to feed you. It's not going to get you shelter. But it's a good way of of helping contribute to that sense of civic belonging. Uh, so I would say that, and I would say though that that's a good start. But I mean, we need to do a lot more than that, you know. And until the next steps are taken, it's going to eventually seem like it's it's just tokenism, right? Like it's a good start, but if you don't finish the job, then, then what's the point? Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think uh, cities need to much more vigorously get involved at the level of the province and the federal government. Uh, because the provinces and the federal government are content to turn a blind eye to this issue. The reality is that the difficulties faced by non-status migrants are difficulties that have been created by exclusionary uh, immigration laws, exploitive immigration laws that draw people in for, for cheap labor but don't provide pathways to citizenship, by exclusionary provincial laws that say we'll take your provincial sales tax, we'll take your contributions to the economy, but you can't access social assistance, you can't access uh, OHIP. Uh, so they're creating these problems and they're content to let the city deal with the, the realities of this. Uh, and that until the provinces and the federal government are made to feel uncomfortable and to be made aware that it's their constitutional and legislative and, and political responsibility to deal with problems that they've created, cities are going to continue to be left in the dark. So uh, for, for their own self-interest, cities need to take this fight up a level. All right. Well, Dr. Hudson, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. My pleasure.
Lately, it seems there's been a lot of positive, progressive declarations coming out of City Hall. We have a poverty strategy. We're a sanctuary city, and on and on. This is important symbolism, the kind people rally behind. But if symbolism is all it is, if these goals are under or even unfunded, if we don't actually implement strategies on the ground to support and protect the newcomers we welcomed here on Twitter, then all these declarations are empty words. Canadian cities are well-positioned to be leaders when it comes to welcoming newcomers. We can demonstrate, through our actions and our words, the kind of diverse, welcoming, and supportive country we want to be. To do that, cities need to lead by example. Which may seem like a daunting task. But hey, we did it before. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your local ornithologist, your jazz ensemble, and your playoff party. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Please hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and tips. We're on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or you can email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's glenbowerman at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. Until next time, see you at Lula Lounge. Cheers. Cheers.